please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading from verses 8 to 31. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Did you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is her mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you never bore a child. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but children of the free woman. Well, good evening. If you've got uh, Galatians 4 there, keep it open. Over the last year or so, 25 um, people drawn from this church have been reading this brilliant book by Jim Packer, Knowing God. If you've never read it, read it. It's a masterpiece. When we'd finally finished it, we as a group reflected on what parts of this shaped us the most, what hit, hit deepest. And again and again, it came out of the group, it was the chapter on adoption as sons, what it means to be adopted. At the beginning of that chapter, Jim Parker, he asked this question. He says, what is a Christian? What's a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. 
The older I get, the closer I draw to the Lord, I can't think of a better answer. I can't think of, of landing anywhere clearer or fuller than that particular way of defining what it means to be a Christian. And friends, that's where we landed last week in this letter to the Galatians. The truth that through faith in Christ, the holy, living, awesome, all-powerful God has decided to make us his own, to make us sons and to make us heirs of everything along with his son, Jesus. We gather tonight as those who are able to call him Abba, Father. That's the most intimate way you could address a parent. It struck me as I reflected on that this week and what we heard last week, that there's not a single angel in existence who will ever, ever be able to call God Father. And yet I do so daily. I hope you do. Isn't that astonishing? That one privilege that marks the whole package. And in some ways Paul could have finished the letter there. That richest point of the gospel, that richest fruit of the gospel, with us seated in a way at our Father's table with everything, our inheritance, laid before us and waiting. That alone would have justified the anger and the passion that we've seen in Paul so far, the strength with which he defends the gospel and says nothing less than Jesus. He could have finished there and we would have been content. But we're not done, are we? There are riches yet to be unveiled in this letter and there are dangers to be named and exposed. And the truths that he lays out in chapter 4 are as explosive as any. We're going to see him dive deeper into arguably the defining story of God's people, not just Abraham, but Sarah and Isaac. And he's going to turn it on its head. God, through him, teaching us how to now read the Old Testament. With that in mind, we're going to cut it three ways tonight. First of all, we're going to see, or just look at the dangers of a highly religious life. Then we'll look at weakness in truth versus zeal in error. And lastly, we're going to ask the question, who's your mother? Who's your mum? So, first part tonight, the dangers of a highly religious life. So having brought his original audience to the heights of adoption in chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, Paul affirms that by contrasting you know, in a tight manner, who they were and who they now are. And in verse 9, we get a sort of great little moment of either self-correction or a, or a clarification. I think we've got to imagine Paul dictating this letter, and he says it one way, and then he says, oh, I'll say it another way. It's there in verse 9. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God or rather a known by God. They who were strangers to God have come to know him, but only because God has stepped to them, stepped to us in his son. What matters most is that they and we are known by God, known by name, known and loved as a father with his own, seated at his table, ready to give them all that he has in his hands. Known by God. Which begs the question to these Galatian Christians, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. What were they thinking? Were they thinking? Jesus had rescued them from the present evil age, from slavery to pagan gods that were basically just fictions of a fearful, sinful mind. And now they were turning back to the same weak and miserable forces or principles, just dressed in another form. Paul here, he sounds like a guy who's waded into the surf and grabbed all these people who can't swim, ripped them out, landed them on the beach, dripping but safe, high and dry and home. Catching his breath, turns his back, and he finds they've all gone and jumped into the lagoon. What are they doing? You can't swim. What makes this passage and what follows so explosive is that he's just equated the life under fake pagan gods with the life under the law in Judaism. They were pagans and now they're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I take it he's referring to the Jewish calendar. He's saying here, look, anything less than faith in Christ, walking by the Spirit, is a life of slavery. Be it attached to temple cults of Artemis or Zeus, money or work, or attempts to get right and stay right with God by means of the law, it is a weak and a miserable map for life. It is no life at all. So why, why take that path? What is the attraction of such things. We've seen Paul, and we'll see him again next week, focus very much on circumcision. Circumcision as the door into Judaism. But here we get a glimpse, not just of the door in, but of the path onwards, the path beyond circumcision in some sense. He's referring to special days and season. It points to the ongoing life of the Jewish people, that annual cycle of festivals and memorial days that retold the story of the exodus and of landing in the land, of great victories on the battlefield because of God's strength, great and beautiful festivals, things that mattered, that punctuated a year for very, very good reasons for a very, very long time because they were designed to make sure God's people didn't forget and to teach them to look forward to one who was to come. Well, he's come. The Messiah is here. Don't need Passover now, for the Passover lamb has finally shown up. They had their time, and that time has gone. And the Judaizers, the ones pushing law, the ones who don't worship Jesus, they're trying to sell an old package. It's like someone pushing, you know, you really need to get dial-up. That's a silly offer, isn't it? But that's what it's like. They're pushing an old package. And they're doing it to Gentiles. Remember, these are born outsiders. And they're saying, hey, you can be an insider. Get circumcised, live as we do, and you can pretty much be an Israelite. You can get right and stay right with God. Never mind the fact that we've just been told they're insiders as we are in a way that no one else is. We have here the dangerous attraction 
of the highly religious life, the life of discipline and tradition, rules and regularity. And there is an attraction, there's a certain safety, isn't there, and a familiarity within the formal bounds of such a calendar and life. Can you think of a time in your life when freedom, like the open road, was there before you? And as exciting as that possibly was, there was also a sense that this is huge and this is unsettling. This is a little nerve-wracking. Maybe you were leaving the familiar bounds of school or heading off overseas, leaving home, becoming a leader in some form. It's not uncommon for part of us to quietly long to simply be a follower and not have to make the really big, hard decisions. It's not unusual out there to think, I really wouldn't mind being at home where food and laundry magically appears. There are times overseas where you think, oh, I just want to be on familiar shores. And there are seasons, aren't there, where I think, gee, I wish someone would just hand me a timetable and I just follow bells and do what I'm told. It's familiar, it's secure. I've heard those that engaged in prison ministry speak of an institutionalised mind and will that really, really struggles on the outside, <clears throat> particularly if you've been inside for a long time. So I've heard they, they spoke of a guy who was so accustomed to waiting at various locked doors and gates that he continued to stand in front of doors waiting when he'd been released, waiting for someone else to open it. And he had to learn that he was now a free and responsible agent. He had to open his own doors. It's not unusual for a few inmates to prepare the predictable bounds and routines of life inside. The Galatian Christians were slaves set free to walk by faith, to start exercising not just that freedom but the responsibility to say yes to Christ and no to sin. That's where we're going to go in the next couple of chapters of Galatians. That immense freedom brings with it responsibilities. But now they were turning back, drawn to the life of mere discipline and tradition, mere rules and regulations, where they could, didn't have to walk by, by faith, they could walk by the flesh in their own strength. And as such, it's an appeal to the pride. It's an appeal to pride. One of the reasons that I'm told that, that Islam makes deep inroads into prison populations, men, male populations, is that it has an innate appeal to men who are broken, who are shamed because they've been caught and incarcerated and might easily feel they're stuck. There's something in Islam, in its rigour, in its discipline, in its form, that says you can be a man, you can muscle up, you can pray five times a day. You can memorise these verses. You can grow strong. You can beat the system even while you're within it. There's something, there's a real appeal to that, isn't there? If you've got, if you're done any physical training with someone, their job is to speak to you in those terms, to get you out of looseness into tight, sort of fit form. That's the appeal here of that. And when you encounter someone who said yes to that and they're in it, they're doing it, they can be very impressive, can't they? Very imposing. 
If you'd met a full-blood Pharisee like Saul of Tarsus, we would have been very, very impressed with these men. They lived a highly disciplined life, impressive, even imposing. But beware of the attraction of such a highly regulated religious life. In a different letter of Paul to the Colossians in chapter 2, he is combating people who are pressing this on those Christians there. And he writes this. He said, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You see, in short, as impressive as that highly religious life looks, it simply doesn't work. It doesn't work. It cannot beat sin and it simply cannot save. It's not humble. It's very, very proud because it relies on the flesh, on the old sinful desire to make my own way, to climb myself to God who will answer on my terms. When the truth is we, we desperately need to be saved. We need him to come to us. See, it doesn't matter whether you're in the surf or you're in the lagoon, you're drowning, as am I. Be it paganism or Judaism under the law, it's a miserable and weak map for life. And no path for those who've been rescued from the present evil age, redeemed, adopted as sons, children of the living God, called to walk by faith. That's you. That's me. As we'll see, there is a place for rigour and discipline as we follow Jesus. Absolutely. We need to be free and responsible men and women putting our freedom into action, exercising it like muscle. And we as a church, we map out a calendar. We've got certain things that punctuate the year because we trust that that's a way for us as a community to stay focused. Share life is coming. Share life is simply a way of breeding a mission-mindedness all year and it comes to a particular point of focus. So there's nothing wrong with a calendar either and particular festivals. But are we placing our full faith in Christ alone as free men and women? Is it an outworking of our freedom or is it a means of somehow attaining it? That's the gospel Paul first brought to the Galatians and it's to that visit that he takes us in the next section. So weakness in truth, zeal in error. When was the last time you were the target of a guy like this, a salesman? A passionate salesman. Someone skilled at the art of drawing you in, walking, you know, working around your doubts, and always, always driving steadily towards the sale. Now, if what they're selling is good, then we can be thankful for the pressure. They exhorted us to a good end, and yep, this thing works. But if what we've bought is a dud, we just kick ourselves, don't we? We've been worked around and one had our, you know, the wool pulled over our eyes. In most cases, it's our money in play, whether it's well spent or it's lost. But in Galatia, we're dealing with the souls of men and women, just like us. And both Paul and the Judaizers, they've both come to evangelise, to sell in some sense. 
but they use very, very different methods. Paul's arrival was marked by truth in weakness. He says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Jesus Christ himself. As Eugene Peterson observes, he didn't come as a strong, charismatic, glamorous leader with an impressive credential, offering sweeping, glorious solutions. He was weak and in need of their help. He didn't dazzle them with a sales pitch. He arrived and immediately fell apart. They needed to nurse him back to health. Judging by the reference to to eyes in verse 15, it's most likely a problem that Paul had with his eyes, with his eyesight. The transformative truth of the gospel landed from a broken man, a very, very sick man, needing to entrust himself to others. And if it's a problem with the eyes, you can imagine they've got to lead him around. They've got to tell him what's going on. Blindness is a terrible, striking thing, isn't it? He needed to entrust himself to others even as he preached an absolute surrender to Jesus as Lord. There's something very moving here, isn't there, in this portrait of a hospitable community who are hungry to hear the good news even as they nurse the preacher. Friends, don't doubt God's ability to use each of us at our lowest, at our weariest and our sickest. Use us to bear witness to Christ and reach the lost. For it's in that state that I think the essential man or woman tends to come to the fore, stripped of our pride and our independence. So, friends, next time growth group's on and you think, oh, I'm just knackered, I've had the most wretched day, I'm no good to anyone, go. Bring that wretchedness, bring your weariness, bring your struggles and trials to the group in all honesty and see what the Lord might do through you. See how the Lord will use you in your weakness, not just in your strength. It's a vital lesson. It's basic to leadership. Turn up and see what the Lord will do when we put ourselves at his disposal, even at our lowest. Paul had to learn that and look at the fruit that it bore. The Galatians found they had a man of faith under their care, a man who'd arrived humble and needy, not too proud to ask for help, able to become like those around him, also that they might become like him, a man of faith. Are you that sort of leader? Are you that sort of man or woman? Am I? That's his appeal here to family in Christ who've started to treat him as an enemy under the influence of these false teachers. These are salesmen with a very different pitch. He writes, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you might have zeal for them. Now, zeal or intense energy, it's a good thing, isn't it? But it's only when it's in the service of truth. When it drives error, as it is here, it's so dangerous. And Paul diagnoses here and again in chapter 6 what the real motive of these men is. 
They're not there to draw people to God, but to themselves. They want to be able to boast, we got these guys. They're notches on our gun. They're numbers on our balance sheet. They want the Galatians to have zeal for them because they want to impress people, as it says in chapter 6, verse 12. What did we learn back in chapter 1 about such motives, about wanting to please people? Remember Paul wrote back then, with immense zeal, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In that early chapter, we hear Paul's zeal for the Lord and his love for these people. The stark anger with which he deals with error. Their zeal serving truth. He wants to draw them to Jesus and keep them there, unlike these other men. And he's not their enemy because he's telling, them, telling it straight. Actually, quite the opposite. So friends, let's be wary of mere zeal. I think particularly in the age of you know, celebrity pastors and highly polished churches, are they drawing you to Jesus or themselves? There's nothing wrong with being on, on, on screen. I am right now. There's nothing wrong with polish. We are highly polished compared to many churches. The question is, what's at the beating heart of whatever is being preached or presented or worshipped? Is it Jesus? Is it the gospel? Let's listen closely. Because zeal in the service of truth is brilliant, but in the service of error is very, very dangerous. At the time of writing, the Galatians they seem to be caught between the truth handed to them in weakness and the error that has been wrapped in zeal. Paul doesn't know what to do. He's perplexed. So he basically asks, who's your mother? Which is always going to be an aggressive, you know, sort of striking question, isn't it? So last part tonight, who's your mother? Back in chapter 3, Paul trumped any appeal to Moses and the law by citing Abraham, his earlier and his greater in that sense. And he showed that all who believe, Jew and Gentile, are children of Abraham, the man of faith. So he's already introduced us to Abraham. Now he pushes further into that defining story of God's people, Abraham's wife Sarah and the miracle child Isaac to show that we, like Isaac, are miracle kids here tonight. We are children of promise. And as he does this, he turns that defining story on its head. Now, every Jewish man or woman, then and now, would have traced their family lineage from Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac. That's basic. That's, you know, that's their story. Back in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah, they'd grown tired of waiting for this promised child. And they take matters into their own hands. Sarah says, here's Hagar, my slave woman, my, my maidservant. Abraham, go and have a child with her. And he does it. They have a boy called Ishmael, born of Hagar and Abraham. It's a moment when their faith failed. When they thought, God's too slow, God's forgotten, we need to make it happen. Product, Ishmael. As we're told in 4 verse 23, he was born according to the flesh, born according to the normal way. But in Genesis 17, God, who works in his time, in his place, provides Isaac, the child who by worldly fleshly standards should never ever have come. 
Now, it's not unusual, often in the, the, the thrill of a baby being born, for someone to go, it's a miracle. Friends, it's a mind-blowing wonder, but it's not a miracle. This is how creation works. This is how God has designed each of us to arrive in this world. My father delivered thousands and thousands and thousands of babies. He said, you never lose a sense of the wonder of a child arriving in the world. But it's not a miracle. But I tell you, Isaac's a miracle. Isaac should never, ever have existed. His mother, Sarah, was way, way beyond childbearing age. And yet this little boy arrived. As Paul writes it, he was born as the result of a divine promise. In verses 21 to 26, Paul takes these two women figuratively to illustrate the difference between life under the law and that life of faith. The life that takes things into our own hands or the life lived in dependence on God. To all those born Jewish or Gentiles attempting to be Jewish, assuming we're of Sarah's line, he's saying, no, you're not. You're actually of Hagar's line the one born by normal means. You're of Hagar's line. That's the line of the flesh and the covenant of the law established up there on Sinai. That's the line of slavery, and it corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem that has rejected Christ. That's incendiary. That's an explosive statement. You're telling me the holy city of Jerusalem is actually linked to Ishmael? Yes, it is explosive and deliberately so because Paul wants to drive a deep right wedge between any notion of law-keeping and Christ in the Galatian heads and hearts and in ours. He wants to cut against any attraction of getting circumcised, following the life of Judaism its special days, months and seasons because that's the life of slavery. Miserable, weak, mat for life. But to all who put their faith in Christ, you're of Sarah's line, citizens of the Jerusalem that is above. And at this point, Paul quotes the opening lines of this epic song in Isaiah 54, way back in the Old Testament. An epic promise, a vision of God's steadfast love and the way that he's going to bring a rebellious people and he's going to clean them, forgive them, settle them in a home with himself under an eternal covenant of peace. Brilliant song. Read it this week. Read the whole thing. But what's striking here is that he takes the beginning of that song because it refers to a desolate woman, a woman who can't have kids, having more kids than the one who normally could. Talks of kids, talks of people, including you and me, those who are born not by normal means. He writes, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy, cry aloud, you who were never in labour. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of promise. You see, Isaac was the miracle boy. The man who could never have existed unless God intervened in accord with his word. So if you're here tonight, as I am, 
worshipping Jesus as Lord, calling God Abba, Father, then know that we really shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be able to speak to him like that. By any worldly gauge and any honest look at our sin and our wickedness, he shouldn't let us anywhere near him. And yet here we are, children in his family, sons and heirs. We're miracle kids only because of God's loving, costly intervention through Christ in accord with his word. Hagar and all that she represents, she's not our mum. Sarah's our mum. And Abraham might be our sort of father in the faith, but Isaac, Isaac, he's our brother in promise. Well, in conclusion, family in Christ, my brothers and sisters, rejoice today that you, we, are known by God. We're known and loved by him. Be wary of the dangerous attraction of that highly religious life and the proud hope that rests on mere discipline and routine. Anything less than faith in Christ walking by the Spirit is slavery to weak and miserable principles. It's good to be zealous, but wherever you have that energy, put it in service of Christ and not in error or our ego. Be zealous, but to a good end. Don't forget, God did a mighty work through a weakened Paul, sick and needy, and he'll do the same through us at times. The Galatians needed a forceful reminder, and so do we, of our heritage in Sarah and our common standing with Isaac. We are children of promise. You go out into this week a miracle kid, able to call God Father in a manner that even the greatest angels never, ever will do so. Why don't we now sing together to our Heavenly Father? Wonderful. Uh, despite our mentioning of Slidu at the start, it has been alive and active with questions. Um, James is going to answer a couple of them now. If you'd still like to put some questions up, um, please do that. There will be a sermon extra sometime this week where James will dive into more of those questions. Uh, but for now, James, uh, I thought we'd have a look at one of the questions there that's mentioning verse 9 in chapter 4. Uh, the question asks, is Paul correcting himself in verse 9 or is he drawing a parallel between knowing God and knowing us? Um, I, don't think, I don't think he's correcting himself. I don't think it's wrong to say you've come to know God. Uh, he, he, I think he just pivots on that and says, I'm going to make a deeper point. Uh, remember, the entire emphasis is on what God has done for us. The entire momentum is about his initiative in coming to us in love through his son. So I think whilst it's very true, they've come to know God, but the only reason they have is because he knows them. So I, think, I don't think he's, he's not correcting himself. He's just, yeah, the best way I can think, he just pivots to a deeper point which does serve the larger argument. It's about what God does for us and then how we respond. Yeah, that's funny. Very helpful, thank you. Uh, later on he mentions Paul does some weak and miserable forces. Uh, someone has asked, what might the weak and miserable forces be for us in our day and age? Um, I think it's anything that, that puts ultimate hope in our own strength, our own intellect, our own ability, our own resources. Um, 
in the end, there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with community. There's nothing wrong uh, with a business or whatever, as long as it's an honest one. It's really where we, if we make that God, if that's our primary vehicle and hope, then in the end it's a very weak thing, isn't it, compared to a God who has beaten death and, and things like that. The misery is an interesting way. I mean, Paul, it's an emotive term. Um, and he said there is something compared to the riches of what we have in Christ, being sons of God, heirs to the whole thing, everything else does look miserable. It looks really... I mean, where, where he says, where, where is your blessing for me, later on in the chapter, uh, there's some translated, where's your joy? What, what happened to the joy? What happened to the excitement that you had when you first grabbed the gospel? So I think the misery lands where you see a life that has been lived long in pursuit of the wrong thing. There is something miserable about it, something really sobering, isn't there, uh, to see that? And I think that's not, we don't give up on those people, we don't despair of them or, or grow cynical. Um, I've, been in, I've been in growth group with a bunch of men who were 70 plus, and some of them had just come to know the Lord, and they were alive. They were just so excited. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's, that's the, the, the map for life is weak and miserable. Anything out of Christ, because <clears throat> Jesus is the one who teaches us how to study, how to go at work and do it well, even a tough one or you know, a significant one. I think, if I can put it that way, um, I mean, there's a bit of debate over that. Some, some translate it forces, other ways principles. Paul's never shy of talking about the spiritual forces that play behind the scenes, things that inform these things. Um, but I, I, w- I land more on principle, simply because that, I don't think that's the point that he wants to make here. Um, yeah, that, that anything less than Christ walking by the Spirit does end up being a weak and a miserable way to live. Mm. Yeah. Everything does pale in comparison yeah. when you truly compare them to Jesus. Uh, someone else has asked, how can we help our friends who are prioritising their highly religious life over their relationship with God? Yeah, interesting. It'd be, it'd be curious to know what the nature of that highly religious life is. I think um, that sounds like their trust and hope is in the fact that if I show up here each week, if I'm faithfully at my growth group, the mere fact of that presence, the routine, is what keeps me in good stead with God. Uh, they're great things to do, but are we arriving here ready to worship? I've got a, uh, that's a really good question for me. Very dangerous. I could show up as, as part of the staff and be managerial, you know, keeping an eye on things, making sure it's all running, doors are closed, all the rest of it noting who's on their email out there and all the rest of it. Um, but I'm not here to manage, I'm here to worship. I'm actually here to engage with the, with the living God and sit under his word um, and to join in song. So I think I want to say to those people, are there good and healthy rhythms in your life? Are there disciplines that you're going at? Are they informed by a relationship with the Lord? Uh, are you coming away from each of those things closer to him, more humble? more deeply assured and more prayerful um, because otherwise it's a very dry thing to be in just a, a highly regulated religious life. Um, we're, we're in this for relationship. And I think that's why I wanted to start on that Jim Packer note. What, what's a Christian? It's someone who has God as father. That's a great description. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and to end on a pastoral note, a lot of people are touching on what you spoke about 
uh, when we're feeling wretched and weary um, and not like gathering with others. Uh, our top question is how can we combat the need to act like everything's okay at church in front of others when we aren't um, and similar vibes. What's the balance between feeling exhausted, needing rest and still going to be an encouragement? Um, what words do you have for us on that? Um, I think we've got to cultivate an honesty here, isn't it? It's got to be a place where it's okay to be frightened and to be uh, weary and to be struggling. Um, so I, the reason I love my growth group is it's that sort of group. Uh, the guys aren't afraid to say, I'm afraid. Um, so I think we need to cultivate that sort of honesty with us. Putting on a front, uh, that's not going to help anyone. Um, being sort of heroic and in that sort of firm, that's not going to breed honest fellowship. So I think if someone asks you how you're going, you don't need to download the entirety of you know, your existence, but be honest. Take that risk. Draw them in. You might find that they respond with a similar response. Um, yes, we do need to rest. We need to sleep. We need to behave like creatures. So eating well, sleeping properly. Remember, rest is not sleep. Rest is wide awake time with the Lord and more often than not with his people. So I think... Yeah, Take a good gauge of, where, of how we're living, the decisions that we're making. Are you staying up, if you're on Sunday morning, are you staying up to 2 to 3 a.m. Uh, on a Saturday night? Are you going to be in your best form when you've got a whole bunch of you know, little ones just bouncing all over the joint? So make, you know, they're, the, they're the sort of decisions we make. If you know you've got growth group coming, what provision have you made in the day to make sure you get there rather than just pull out because yet again the day's sort of swallowed me? Um, but, honest, but in the end, honesty is the best. To acknowledge the fact that, yeah, I'm weary, but I have around me, God's given me a family in Christ. Um, as a husband, I've got to learn to let Michelle be my helper. I can limp along through a week and forget the fact that I'm married to someone who knows the living God and is often much wiser than me. And so I think, who's God given you for when you're weak who might be strength to you? Uh, more often than not, they're the ones sitting around you and the guy standing up in front of you. Although, as though anyone who knows me knows that if you ask me to pray for you, I'm always going to get you to pray for me. It's always, that's that sort of deal. So, yeah. It's a good deal. Yeah, it's a great deal. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to end, what's the one thing that you'd like for us to take away from what you've spoken to us this evening? Um, we can, if you've been around for a long time in the faith, if you've grown up in church perhaps, or you've got a, a mum and dad who are believers... Uh, we can quietly forget that we're miracle kids. We can forget that we shouldn't really, by any worldly gauge, talk to God the way we have, sing to him as we're about to. It's only because of his grace. So, so go out tonight thinking, I'm a miracle kid. Only because he has decided to make me his own am I like Isaac, a child of promise. So yeah, take that out tonight. That, that's... Um, I love the way he unpacks that story. Yeah, yeah, I love the way you put it. Miracle Kids sounds great. Thank you, James. That's right. yeah.